Hey you, you're listening to Sloancast, your one-stop shop deep dive where we discuss anything and everything about the greatest band of all time, Andrew Scott, Jay Ferguson, Chris Murphy, Patrick Pellin, and come on, Gregory McDonald, come on back. Uh, collectively known as Sloan, we are your fellow superfan hosts. I'm Rob, this is Ken. Ken, I've been really enjoying this interview with the one and only Mr. Gregory McDonald. How about you, man? Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, it's interesting to have almost a neutral perspective on the on the very intimate inner workings of the band but also to see what happens as you mentioned in our introduction to to part one what happens if 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 you're a super fan who gets to jump on board the navy blues navy as it were Oh, it's a dream come true. And we hope you, listener, are enjoying it as well. Greg is such an open guy, hard on his sleeve. You know, he's well-spoken and candid. What more could one ask for? But how about a second part to our interview? So, listener, let's do it to it. Ask me some questions. So now we've gone through the early years. I, I wanted to ask, at what point... So you, you, you played on Parallel Play, right? Yeah. You're on there. At what point does the band start giving you notice about, oh, by the way, you know, we're thinking about going back into the studio and how did they incorporate you into their plans there? Well, it's, um, uh, I'll talk about, um, the process for parallel play and double cross hit and run and up to Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's different now because of COVID and stuff. Sure. Um, yeah, and then, I know on 12, they had a, they were making more of an effort to collaborate with each other. Mm-hmm. So I, I wasn't as involved in 12 because they, um, they wanted to sort of work in teams and, and I think they may, I mean, this is my theory. I don't, they may have decided that they were relying a little too much on me <laughs> um, because I was, I was really doing a lot, especially on the double cross. Um, right. But what would normally happen is they they would all just have demos floating around. They've always got demos on the go. And, uh, you know, Jay would just be like, check it out. These are my three songs that I'm kind of thinking about. And uh, he's looking for feedback. And, you know, he's like, should I pursue this one or this one? And I'd be like, oh, my God, that one's amazing. Cheap champagne. Let's do it. Like, it's great. So, you know, it just depends on what songs they're excited about at the time and what mood they're in and where they're at in their life. Because they've always got a stockpile. And they only need to really come up with three each at a time for yeah. a typical Sloan record. So yeah. for par- parallel play, and you know what else happens quite a bit actually is sound checks. Like um, they'll splinter off and usually I will try to get play drums if, if uh, no one's around much to yeah. everyone's chagrin, I think, but <laughs> uh, I know Jay, Jay kind of likes jamming on songs at sound check and I'll sometimes play drums for him just because nobody else will hmm. like everybody else takes off and um, we don't even sound check at all anymore. But um, I remember jamming on um, what did it end up being called? Essential services. Right. We were playing that at a sound check somewhere. He told me to play that beat and um, he was super excited about that. And I was like, yeah, make sure, make sure that one, you got to focus on that one. That's, that's excellent. So for parallel play, um, you know, I'm, I'm just around. Like by 2008, they've all got kids, mm. and they're all very, um, they're just stretched. Like with their time, sure. you know, I know. Like they'll call each other. It's like you know, Chris is like, "Yo, Andrew, can I get you to come in and play some drums for me?" And Andrew's like, "Yeah, I'll give you half an hour on Friday." You know, because I got hockey and then I got to go and uh, I'm cooking fucking lobster for dinner. You know, I got to get home. Mm. So mm. they just don't have as much time to give each other. But me, like I'm 
I've got all, I've got the time and I I love the process like I love being in the studio and and you know I have I have something to offer I I have some good ideas I can play a little bit of everything I I can help arrange you know backup vocals and I can I can do all that stuff so when it was parallel play I think I figured out later that Chris was kind of like don't let him in. Like, don't let him play. It's just the four of us, you know? And like, they, they were trying to really preserve that sort of, I guess, integrity. Mm. But, um, you know, after enough times of somebody else not showing up or like somebody having to leave early, it's just like, Oh fuck. I'm just, just get Greg to do it. So Mm. I, um, sang a lot on parallel play and, um, uh, Jay was always keen to get me to play piano in his songs because he thinks I'm a better piano player than he is, even though he's fine. But uh, um, I guess the first thing we did was, uh, I think we did Cheap, Cham- Cheap Champagne first. The other thing we had to do is we had to buy a piano because right. um, they didn't have one in the space. Um, so I don't know where they were going to record piano, but um, that was sort of my job. I started scouring Craigslist and uh, I'd gotten put... I been put in touch with a piano tuner who I was hiring to go and inspect these pianos for me and make sure that they were worthy at least of, you know, that they could be basically tuned. So, um, we bought a piano off a dude on Dufferin street. Me and Jay went to his house and looked at it and it was Mm. fine. I think it was like 300 bucks and we had it moved into the space and had it tuned. And then, then we could really, you know, spend time with it and come up with parts. So, Mm. Jay was like, I think I want some piano for this. So cheap champagne starts with that real kind of percussive stacked, yeah. like multi octave piano chords and the bop bop up part. Like that was all me. And he was like, that sounds awesome. And cause I had the demos, like he would, he would give me MP3s. So I like, I knew how they went and then I, I did, which is one, two. And then what's his third one? Oh, the Motown song. If I could change your mind, hmm. I was all, so I, I I was trying to let them play, trying to get them to let me play drums on that one. Um, but uh, you know what? They snuck it. Chris did it while I was at it. He waited till I was at a Jason Collette <laughs> rehearsal, <laughs> and they did it behind my back. The bastard! I I knew I knew exactly what he was doing. He was like, "Oh, you were busy." So yeah. So, <laughs> and they were. I think he was secretly pissed at me that I was that I was flirting with another band at the time. Right. But, um, so. Um, yeah, I played a lot on Parallel Play, um, and I sang a lot. I ended up right. singing backups on everything, and we were mixing it at uh, the Orange Lounge with Nick. So Nick is there. Nick yeah. is the same Nick guy DeToro. that was the sound. Right. Uh, yeah, Nick DeToro, great sound guy, great engineer. Did a fantastic job on Never Hear the End of It. Um, Absolutely, really invented a sound, I think, and did an excellent job on Parallel Play, and was very patient with me and gave me lots of you know space and time to figure it out and he was very kind and we uh were mixing it at uh, the orange lounge and ryan Hazlitt was there as well who went up, who ended up recording a lot of the later stuff and mm-hmm. came on tour with us as well another excellent engineer um and patrick sort of wasn't finished in time so he was still recording in the small room at at uh orange lounge while we were mixing the rest of it in the big room on the ssl and he hadn't done like his solos and stuff and he was still putting together believe in me and he wanted me to sing 
at the very end, there's this giant, big stacked harmony where he keeps going, believe in me, believe in me, believe in me over and over again. And for at the last moment, the high note, it has, you know, I have to sing a high C, which is I'd never done before. Like this is some Pavarotti shit. Like it's the high, it's the highest note I'd ever needed to sing. Um, and it took me a while and I was working with Ryan and he was again, very patient with me. And, I had to drink like eight cups of chamomile tea and keep trying and trying and trying. I think it took me a half an hour, but I finally, I did get it and I, I, I hit it pretty hard and, um, I, it sounded pretty good actually. It, mm-hmm. it turned out great. And they were, they were, everyone was, you know, stoked about that. And I've had to sing several high C's since then, but that one, I, I remember it was grueling. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if either of you guys are singers, but like it was, it's screaming your fucking head off, like, yeah. and trying to not sound like you're screaming your fucking head off. But, mm. um, so that was how I got a lot. Like, I can sing really high, like, and the Sloan guys, stuff like Anyone Who's Anyone, and you know, those early records, like, sure. says what she means, like, they were always going for it mm. and giving themselves these parts that were too high for them to sing. Yeah. So that, was a big part of my job and still is um more and more as the as the years progress um so i snuck in a little bit with the singing at the very beginning because no one else could do it and then i was just you know i was available and i was game i had the time i would just say yes when they called and uh and i just like being there i like being in the studio i like the process i love recording i love problem solving i love being on a team I love um, collaborating and and uh, coming up with with things on the spot and working out arrangements together in the moment and I'm good at it and um, uh, so that was parallel play and then I guess the next thing we did would have been hit and run is that right? Do yep, you, that's yeah. right. Um, and hit and run was really fun. Like Chris and I recorded Oh Dear Diary together live off the floor. He plays mm. drums and I played the organ. Mm. Really cool sound. You know, we were going for sort of more of that roomy sound thing, more of a live feel. Uh, played EP. piano. Yeah. yeah, me too. I really, I really like it. Um, it starts with keys, actually. The first thing you hear is the intro to Take It Upon Yourself. Oh, Take It Upon Yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, which I, I stole that. I took Chris's bass part and turned it into the piano lick. And, um, that was a good idea. That, um, that worked out good. He recorded the drums on the four track for that one. Um, and we just built it and yeah, the piano turned out to kind of be a focal part of that song, which, uh, I was happy with play piano on Patrick's, um, it is never song. That was cool. Kind of a, different vibe c minor which you don't get mm-hmm. to work with very often and then the double cross is like all me like it's <laughs> i did everything like i produced it i played it i played everything like it was i don't know if the guys were just not interested or just too busy but um yeah i finally got to play drums i don't know how i got away with that but it was just me and ryan Hazlitt alone in the studio late one night and we were We'd maybe had a couple of years. I don't know, but uh, we. The first thing you hear is basically this organ crash, and then just I'm laughing because uh, we're laughing at how crazy it sounds. I think we ran one of the mics like through a big muff mm-hmm. pedal or something, and it was just the most insane sound. And Ryan and I were both laughing our asses off. So I played the drums. I think just to illustrate, because we really 
I'm I'm really glad Follow the Leader survived. Like we mm-hmm. could do a whole episode on Follow the Leader. Absolutely. It almost died so many times. Um and we couldn't agree on on the drums on like a on a feel. It, it originally had this weird like sea shanty kind of drum waltz pattern to it and mm-hmm. like I was like no this sucks. Like it's got to be like this. So I think I did it just to illustrate the pattern that I had in mind, but, and then it just sounded awesome. So we left it in and it was an extra joke because it was the drum kit that I bought in high school for 10 bucks off of my buddy. Um, which I must've snuck out here in the trailer on the Boston one tour. I don't know how they ended up here, but, um, and I think they're still up there. Sorry. Um, they're probably in deep storage. Um, but they don't take up that much space. I was just going to say, we should say happy 10th anniversary to uh, the double cross. That's this year. Yeah, man, it's crazy to think that that's not new, you know, like, (laughs) but like basically parallel play is first half, I think. I know Never Hear the End of It definitely is. Yes, it is. Which is just mind blowing to me. Like, it's now 15 years Hmm. for me. If this is 06 to 2021, yeah. So 15 years ago today, I would have been learning the songs in my apartment in Vancouver. Right. Not far from where I am right now, actually. Um, yeah, so what was your question? How did I get on? How did I weasel my way onto the records? Well, essentially. Just a combination of being game, being available, not having a ton of other time restrictions. Like Chris jokes that I basically gave them my 30s, <laughs> like the best years of my life. I completely handed over to them. Like I made myself available and uh, I was there for them. And I cost me quite a few girlfriends <laughs> and, um, you know, I made a little money too, but, uh, and, and had a, a lot of fun doing it. But yeah, I, I, I definitely gave them my thirties. Um, but yeah, just being game and being available and I guess being pretty good at music, maybe being talented, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> helps. And then we did the uh, Commonwealth which was a huge task because, you know, the other thing is, like I said, 12 was more collaborative up until then, like those four records that I mentioned, Commonwealth in particular, it's just four solo records, yeah. like right. double cross parallel play. Like there's not that much collaboration. There's not that much. Mm. Um, the name parallel play is a joke on the band. Like they're playing, but they're not playing really with each other. So, and it, it's a lot of just scheduling and, and time. You know, they got their own studio, so it's not like they're booking time to go and work for two mm. weeks. Like, they're just picking away at stuff while it takes two years to make a record. But, um, um, you know, I just, I get along with all four of them individually. And uh, uh, I know, you know, their references. And mm. if they are like, well, you know, I kind of think it should sound more like this. And... You know, Andrew usually plays drums on everyone's, and Chris will play bass on everyone's, but they don't. Um, they don't necessarily need to um, yeah. collaborate that much. But I think for twelve, they they decided that as a sort of a challenge, you know, and it would be equal number of songs again, yeah. and um, you know, almost almost a reaction to uh, Commonwealth, which was very little collaboration, right? Obviously, the one guy per side. You know, 
uh, I sort of joked that when I came on board, like never hear the end of it was almost a re- it was a reaction to Action Packed because you know Action Packed was short, had no Andrew songs, recorded in L.A. with a producer, and like um, for them to come back after that with the self-produced double record, you mm-hmm. know, got like eight Andrew songs, and yeah. um, you know they're always kind of. They they influence in themselves a lot and react to themselves a lot. Like they're they're all big fans of the band and they they don't want to do the same thing over and over again. So you know the they the Commonwealth thing was a huge concept and uh, you know I think for the most part people got it and it was uh, I think it's a great record and I think lots of people liked it. But then after having a record with zero collaboration, it seemed like the obvious thing to do would be try to get back in the room again and right. do more collaborating again. So um, I, I had lots to do on 12, but uh, they did a lot of the sort of groundwork before where as before, it's usually each of them individually shopping their demos like to me, hmm. whereas this time they shopped them to each other, I think a bit more. And now the 13th record is underway, but it's so limited just like with COVID and stuff where hmm. Uh, and plus the studio has basically been gutted. So I think they're, the studio is just a practice. It's just a storage stu- uh, space now. And I don't want to give too much away. Um, but uh, I think you'll be excited to see, uh, have the other guys talked about the new record at all. Um, well, when pa- when, pieces. Yeah. When Patrick was on, he sort we were joking about, you know, what's the single going to be. And he said that he has a oh, song yeah. called scratch the surface, which he posted the lyrics to uh, on Instagram yeah. within the past month. Um, I don't okay. think there've been any sound fragments, but I mean, we've seen lots of pictures, mm. obviously, of Jay and Chris recording drums and yeah. everybody at Ryan's and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 definitely exciting, but yeah, it's really one or two guys at a time. So mm. just because really like of COVID and stuff. And yeah. so I was just gonna cool. I was gonna quickly just share about how we kind of cross paths, maybe because that might be interesting. I don't know, just from my personal yeah, yeah. perspective, just you know, knowing you and stuff. And I think we've now known each other somewhat casually for about fifteen years, basically. Yeah, definitely. Um, it would have been you would have been one of the first people I met. That's right. I remember it was at O'Grady's um, in Toronto, uh, and yeah, I my band to look. Yeah, my band at the time was opening for Pony to Look, and I don't know if I knew if Rebecca was in the band at all when we got the show, but. Um, you and Chris came up the stairs and I had very yes. casually known Chris, just super fan guy at the front. He'd seen me, yeah. I, I'd had, I'd have them autograph like everything. So yeah, I remember it was 2007. We're playing at O'Grady's and, uh, Murph comes up the stairs with you and I just, yeah. I didn't know you were the group. I just thought you were Murph's buddy or whatever. And I had known him only very casually just, you know, from shows and bugging them for autographs and stuff. And sure, uh, sure. so he introduced you and, and he, I think he mentioned to me that night, like, Oh, Greg's playing with us and stuff. And I, and at first I was just like, I probably maybe had the same reaction Chris did initially, which is wait a second, a fifth guy in the Beatles. Like what yeah. the fuck, you know? So, um, right. so, you know, I was worried about that. Like I thought yeah. like, cause I'd like the band a lot and I was like, how are these people going to react to like mm-hmm. this, this, this new guy? Like who is this fucking guy? And also, I think there were a lot of people that probably thought of themselves as a, a, can, a capable candidate for that gig <laughs> if they'd known it it was available. And yeah. I remember thinking, or even Chris might have said, like they they were glad to take somebody that wasn't in the Toronto music scene because right. a lot of people might have said, like, why the, that guy? Sure. I'm better than that guy. Yeah. Or why didn't you ask me? But 
me being like this weird, like sexy Vancouver outsider, you know, it's just like, I just like this man with no name rolls into town. Like, <laughs> like, Oh, he must be good. He's from Vancouver. Like I've never seen him before, you know, like, well, but I- that did cross my mind. I was like, I hope nobody's going to like, and I'm sure lots of people do think that I'm some goof or like, uh, like who is this fucking guy ruining my favorite band? But no, um, I mean, I mean, history, history has shown, you know, obviously to, I mean, I, I don't want to like just use the rest of the episode to kiss your ass or whatever. I mean, it's, it's true. Uh, go ahead. I, I, like, I, like I'll say, I mean, there's plenty of things we can talk about here, but I mean, whether it be just, you know, your vocal blend with the other guys, especially like Chris and Patrick, you know, we've talked about their sort of untouchable, uh, voices together, you know, and then being able to kind of fit in there, um, yeah, that was for me the thing. Like when I when I first met you, it was like, oh, cool. Like he's you know in the band. We'll, we'll see how that sounds or whatever. Um, and it was, I mean, I think I'd maybe seen the show um, previous to that, but it really hit me. I think when Parallel Play came out, um, the vocals, like you said, like on songs like Believe in Me and stuff, and even just like little silly mm-hmm. stuff. Like I remember uh, going to that Orange Lounge show when they released the album. And I think Believe in Me might have been the first song. And right off yeah. the top of the song, you cue the backwards guitar thing, I think, from the oh, yeah. movies. And I was yeah. like, and I was like, ooh, there's something that you don't hear normally. Something things are changing. Sure. And yeah, um, so, that's right. So just little like, details. Yeah, little details like that was just like, ooh, this is like I, I like this, mm. you know. Um, Good. But anyway, I was gonna say I met you at O'Grady's, and then I think the next time I saw you, uh, and you, and you mentioned earlier, I wanted to mention too about Chris and his big heart. Um, cause I'd yeah. met him a couple of times, but that night, uh, I, he, he saw that I was playing drums and I told him previously, like, you guys are the reason I play drums or whatever, essentially. And so he didn't have to do this, but the whole show, he sat two feet from the stage and just watched me right. the whole show. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I asked the guys mid set, I'm like, can I do a drum solo real quick? And we didn't do that oh, in, totally. in that band and they let me, and he saw that and whatever. Anyway. So yeah, but, he's, he, he'll be every, like, he loves to be a cheerleader, you know, like he'll, he'll, um, he's so good at just like making people excited and bringing out the best and, and like he'll egg you on and, and he'll show off too. Like if, if he was playing that night, he would have done a drum solo for you. Like <laughs> he just wants, he's, you know, he's just always just wants, um, you know, the best for everybody. And uh, he would sit right there and watch the whole show for yeah, sure. He's the best. And I remember the next time yeah. I, think I saw you was South by within a few months of there or something. It would have been, I can't remember if it was 07. It would have been 07. Cause that's when, uh, the tour yeah. everything oh. was coming out. <laughs> let me give you a quick, uh, just a quick, funny little short story about Please. that. I was brand new still. I'd never been to South by, I didn't know anything like I'd heard about it and I was so stoked to be there. Right. Like it's, it was just awesome. Like, and I was so green and so just excited and I've taken a million pictures and um i had this this keyboard this like kind of terrible roland keyboard that i was using for like real piano sounds and i would also use it for like mellotron samples like the flutes and stuff mm-hmm. and like it did it had this external memory card cuz like i had to sample i had to actually get my hands on actual mellotron samples mm-hmm. and i had to load them in one at a time and like it, i spent weeks doing this to get ready for the tour and I was like on the phone with Roland, like trying to learn how to use this thing and like the built in sampler. And like, it was just, it was so much work and it was like a one gig 
giant like compact flash card you know what those look like the yeah. big heavy mm-hmm. square ones mm-hmm. and i had to buy an adapter and it was like three hundred dollars for this fucking flash card and i had to buy an adapter and anyway i was so paranoid that my precious samples would get lost that if we had to check the keyboard into a flight i would take it out and i had a i had a little hard case and i would put it in that and carry it on my person on the flight because I thought if I lose the samples, like I'm, I'm dead in the water, right? right? So we get to Texas, we get to Austin, our gear is unloaded, it's loaded into the venue, but I've got my memory card in my hotel room safe, you know, like I'm guarding it with my life, like I'm brand new, like I've only played like with the guys for six months maybe at this point. Yeah. So I don't know if either of you guys, you've, Rob, obviously you've been to South by, Ken, have you been to South by? Like, no. Okay. It's just chaos, and it's just an absolute shit show, debauchery. It's famous for its parties that happen during the day, mm-hmm. where bands will play in these tents, and it's they're always sponsored by a liquor company, and everybody just gets shit faced, and it's a total hose down, right? Like it's just like, just bro fest, like <laughs> just a shit show. So we're playing. Our first thing we're doing is this one of these day parties in a tent in a parking lot. It's like a hundred degrees. And everyone's quickly, frantically setting up and our crew are there and Mike's there. And I get my keyboard out. I open the case, put it up on its stand. And I'm just like, my heart just fucking sinks. And my, my, uh, uh, memory card, I left it at the hotel and it's like a half hour drive. And there's, you can't get, once you're on the grounds, like you're you're just like, there's just a sea of people. Mm. So I'm panicking. And I just, I run over and I grab Mike and I'm like, Mike, Mike, oh my God, oh my God. And he looks at me like he, like, like someone's had a heart attack or something. And he's like, what is it? What is it? And I'm like, I don't have my memory card for the Juno. And he goes, okay, what does that mean? (laughs) And I said, I said, Mike, I don't think I can play fading into obscurity. (laughs) And he's just like get the fuck out of here like <laughs> we're playing a good and everyone and that's it and money city me next we're playing like five songs we're not playing all of never hear the end of it like i'm white as a sheet he's like we're not playing fading and fuck get the fuck out of my face go set up your shit and like we played literally we played like underwhelm good and everyone like maybe you tie live like that and that's it yeah. And I don't need my precious Mellotron samples. I, I didn't even oh. need the keyboard. Like, I think I just played tambourine the whole time anyway. Um, okay. So that, that's my, that's my short story about South by. That's great. I remember that show. I actually saw every single, every time you guys played, I, I was there. Um, you were there. Yeah. I basically, I went to that, the band got accepted. I was into play. And when I found out that someone was playing, I was like, well, my mission is to see every single show. So I can't remember how wow. many there were, but it'd been like three or four times. Yeah. We um, played, yeah, and there was we did one. the mess with Texas thing with David Cross. That's what uh, I was going to just mention. Up was there? I think that's right. We, they were playing and, outside. Yeah, yeah, and we did. Um, uh, who else was on that David Cross party? That was fun. It was like maybe Apples and Stereo, that's or right. like um, yeah. uh, I want to say Nick Lowe, but I don't think that could be right. It was um, maybe Robin Hitchcock. Uh, I sometimes get them mixed up. <laughs> Um, cause it would have been the, some of the Yep Rock bands. I think we were starting to get in, uh, affiliated with Yep Rock. And then I remember at the, when fucked up played Keith Morris was there and, right. um, fucked up played nervous breakdown and Keith Morris got up and sang. And I have a hilarious, like 
very low res video of Chris in the mosh pit losing his shit during nervous <laughs> breakdown. And it was like, it was so exciting and so fun. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, that's when we would have met, I guess. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I remember or met, met again. Yeah. My memory of that is coming down the street and the lineup for that David Cross show with you guys is like around the block. Nobody can get in. I, yeah. I just walked by to maybe peek in and you were at the door and obviously you'd been yeah. in, you'd been in out that day like a ton of, hundred times and you just slipped me your pass and you're like oh good good like, for me you're like come on in and oh, I'm the uh, best dude that was the best I I gotta thank you for that um, because <laughs> you got it, man. yeah my relationship with you kind of maintained my relationship with the guys a bit because it was I got in that day go. and I got to I got to hang out with Chris and David Cross which was crazy um, so cool seeing those two guys go back and forth like the humor and shit that wasn't that was oh, like yeah. the highlight of, one of the highlights of the trips for me for sure was seeing those two guys chatting with each other but whew. well that's uh, basically how i got the gig is because i could talk mr show with with chris <laughs> like yeah it's not uh, and i'll be the first to admit it and i've i've said it before it's, it's no secret like there's guys that are so much better than me and, and like i'm good but um I literally got the gig because, like, I can make Chris laugh. Basically, like, it's <laughs> if you have to be able to to keep up with um, the references and mm. and Mr. Show, and you know that was a lot has happened since then. But at the time in two thousand six, like, um, actually, I guess it was two thousand three when I when I really started to hang out with those guys. But there are better players for sure. But Sloan's not the kind of band that ever um, they don't really. Um, they just hire their friends. You know what I mean? Mm, like yeah. they, they, they're not the kind of guys that'll hire like the kind of crew that are like lifer crew dogs, you know, like mm. those road dogs that like say like fucked up stuff. Like they're just like, like those, you know, it's like those lifelong crew roadie types their are just have are, like weird. Their names are usually like red dog and they're a huge coke head. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah definitely. Yeah, and they just have like weird world perspectives, and they're like they, they're they're usually you know they're homophobic and sexist and racist, and they they just want to they just want to get fucked up and like like uh, just be dicks, you know. Like Sloan just doesn't roll with those kind of people at all. Like mm. their sort of philosophy is like let's make sure we hire people that we can get along with, and they can learn the job, you know, like. We brought our friend Kevin out. The guy doesn't know how to do lights. Like, well, he still he still doesn't. But he's like, he'll figure it out. Like, we we're not going to bring a lighting guy. Like, just like a mm. like a lifelong lighting guy. Like, those guys are the worst. <laughs> and you know, or like and, and even we, our sound guys. Like, there's just the the type of crew dog guy. They just don't. They would never last five minutes. Like, they're so much more interested in in personality and and getting along you know like which is uh, I, I i'm the first to admit that's that's why i got that's why i got asked i'm sure that there were other names well chris did say that my name was the only name that came up but i'm i think it's because i was they knew that i would get a, that i've already proven that i could get along and that's <clears throat> that's more important they'd much rather have somebody that maybe sucks at the job hmm. um the but you know, if you got to live with this person in a submarine for three weeks at a time, like it's hard enough as it is when, when you're friends, when you're best friends, like shit happens and people have bad days and like people will pick on each other a little bit. And I've probably pissed off quite a few people. And you know, it's just, um, 
you really have to surround yourself with, with good people and people that you get along with fundamentally, like on a personal level. Um, because you know, we're a small business we're a small team. It's, you know, it's not like we're Kings of Leon or something where you can just never even meet your crew or, Mm. but even then it's just like those people can represent you. And, you know, if, even when you're not on the road, if you've got some lighting guy that is, you know, does something, does some shitty behavior and it's like, Oh, well you're affiliated with those guys. Like they would just never allow that, you know, like yeah. anyway, it's, um, I got the gig not cause I'm the best piano player. That's for sure. Well, I but mean, I'm pretty good. Yeah. I don't think anybody who's seen the, sh- the, the band over the past 15 years would argue, but, um, I am pretty good. <laughs> anyway, you, you said you were going to kiss my ass for the rest. Of the I was going to give so. you some additional kudos here. So we haven't chatted about this on the show before, but full transparency, like, my band, like the band that I was in like 10 years ago, got to do a short stint with the band. Like on, Hot on, Kid, right? Yeah, we got to go on <clears> tour with Sloan. Uh, which oh, was man, like, that was awesome. Dude, a, like talk about living your dream. Like, holy shit. Like I've, do- sure, I've done yeah. that now. And so, you know, I have zero aspirations essentially. But it was 2011 and Double Cross had come out, which is an amazing record. And I was working at a record store in Toronto and I had uh, booked the band. To play. Oh, you did the... You did the big uh, window display, right? Yeah, well, my coworker Tim had done that, but I definitely like rallied for it big time. You know, that was so cool. Uh, and so I had also rallied for another in store, and the band had just done one like the previous record store day or something, and they were kind of like again, really. And I kept right. bugging Mike Nelson about <clears throat> it, and they they agreed to do it. And of course, I was in another band as well at the time, and we went to Europe to play some shows uh, on the same. Mm-hmm period of time that the band were going to be playing at the store and i was like fuck like i so want to be the guy because normally i i was booking the shows and hosting them and i wanted to be the guy who said fucking would you please welcome the stage sloan right oh yeah and i was heartbroken that i wasn't going to get to do it i told the band that i was going to leave the fucking band because sloan were playing at the store and i'm hosting that show and they they (laughs) they begged me to stay Uh, and so Uh, you did the right thing robbie anyway so i'm on the tour i'm in ireland i'm in dublin and mm-hmm. I'm on this shitty Wi-Fi computer, and this episode is quickly becoming all about me. I apologize, listener. But, no, um, no, <laughs> but this is the, it gets back to you. Um, and I get an email from Mike, similar to the message you got from Chris, and he's just like, hey, man, does the band want to tour this Northeast little stint with Sloan? And I was like, I shit my pants. I was like, oh, my God. Nice. Of course. You know, so... The whole the whole tour in Europe, I'm just like, the only thing I can think about is the Sloan tour, yeah, which I did shortly yeah. after that. But anyway, I, my memories of that were just how awesome you were. And I remember the first day yeah. I, got on the, I got on the bus just to say hi to everybody. And I think you were one of the only people there. And you were like, first thing you were like, how's it going, buddy? You want some water? Water's right there. Bathroom's right over there. You know, like, if you need anything, <laughs> let me know. Like, uh, and you kind of gave me a rundown Aww. of, like, how things went. I was just like, this dude's the best dude. I feel immediately Aww. super comfortable, right? And um, anyway, it was, it, was, it, was an amazing, right. it was an amazing time. So. <laughs> but I the, am the best. <laughs> um, yeah, that was fun. I remember that. That was a fun little tour. Yeah, man. You guys were so fun. You had your crash symbol way up high, and <laughs> that was uh, everybody got a kick out of that. It was great. Yeah, my little nod to John Stanier from Battles. But anyway, I, I want to maybe uh, just go back to the music for a second. Um, and for me, the contemporary Sloan period, and by contemporary, I mean the sound, starts pretty. Much, I would say with hit and run. So around two thousand nine, because uh, parallel play in many ways is an extension of, of never hear the end of it uh, tonally, but 
Right. Um, I'm not sure where I'm getting at with this, but I, you know, I, first of all, I want to thank you for donating your 30s to the band because I, I feel as though the contemporary Sloan sound uh, stems from your luxurious donation of uh, of, of your abilities. Wow, um, thank you. The 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 one the one thing that's uh, kind of sticking out in my mind the entire time though is that you you know you were brought in to to be able to do this never hear the end of it sound live. Since then, there have been other styles that have gone through uh, the canon. What what are the most challenging things to do live from your perspective? Because a lot of the times on the stage, you're juggling three or four different roles. Like you're doing you're you're doing percussion, you're doing keyboard parts, and you have to sing the high notes, and you might have to make up for notes that the guys are flubbing live or something because it's a bad night like what what's the most challenging act for you as a as a all-rounder well the um <clears throat> i'm not sure if this uh if this is a satisfactory answer um but the hardest thing that we've been doing lately are the sort of album anniversary tours right uh like looking back and trying to recreate something um, like you said, I came on for never hear the end of it. Um, so at that point we were trying to recreate never hear the end of it, um, faithfully. Mm. I mean, we, that's the band these days, I guess, more or less that's their goal. Um, so I was brought on to help fill out those sounds for the keys and stuff on never hear the end of it. But then moving forward, you know, we don't really think about how hard it's going to be to play it live when we're recording it. I do often, it's not uncommon for me to be playing a tambourine with one hand, a piano with the other, and singing a part all at once. Um, and that just takes a little bit of mental, it's choreography, like it's just, it's basically dancing. Um, it It does take some getting used to. That sounds like a J song, the one uh, the, having to do the tambourine and the keyboard and the high high harmony as well. That that, that must be a J yeah, song. Yeah, yeah. You know what? What's what was hard was um, "Come On, Come On" is always kind of hard. I mean, I can give you specifics. I guess "Follow Leader" was really hard. Like, hmm. there's so much going on in that song. Um, like I'm kind of doubling the bass line with the left hand on the organ. There's okay. tambourine going almost the whole time. And then there's this big breakdown in the middle with, with, with lots of harmonies and Jay's doing this awesome solo. And um, Challenging as far as just strictly playing live. Uh, hearing myself often is my biggest challenge. Um, especially when there was that phase when Andrew insisted on having that AC-30 on right. a flight case right in front of my face. Um, I sort of had to put a stop to that because it's very loud. Yeah, I mean, so obviously anybody who's seen the band over the past 15 years, one of the great treats when you were at the group was the in-between song sort of like 
bridge, you know, like you're, <clears throat> yeah, because normally it would just be like, mm-hmm. you know, Chris doing some in between song banter till Jay takes the bass and then he runs back to the drums really quick and then they slam into People of the Sky or whatever Andrew's playing. Sure. Um, and but then obviously when you're on board, we're hearing like A side wins, which in a regular show up to that point, you're not even hearing those, you'd never hear that, you know, because um, yeah. it wasn't necessarily on the set list. So I guess my question would be, how did that come about? And who decides what goes where, you know, and how has that changed maybe over the years? Yeah, that's, um, man, the set lists are tough. And we always start a tour um, rehearsing a bunch of songs and it's like, yeah, we'll have extra songs that we can like just swap out one night if we're not feeling it or something. And then we never do. Like the set list does not change from night to night because it's, it is kind of political and it is a lot of, um, shuffling and uh, making everybody happy and once it works we tend to just leave it alone but um, yeah I was all I was all gung-ho and pushing for like the segues and stuff at the beginning and and um, really think I like it when they would you know two songs would flow together and like or if we can play um, so beyond me and to don't you believe a word like yeah. stuff like that yeah. we can do it um and uh, I was always pushing for that or like putting three song segues together, like for the double cross tour, for example, we would start with those three songs, follow the leader answers you into unkind. And I just, I loved doing that. But uh, I think eventually the, the guys just felt it was too stressful, <laughs> like committing to like an 18 piece, minute piece of music, you know, like we were doing, and especially our top of the show, like we were doing Andrew's um, 48 portraits live. I don't know if either of you were lucky enough to catch that yes. uh, live because I don't think it'll ever happen again. Um, <laughs> and it was just like, it's so stressful. Like you just, you know, as soon as you start that it's like 18 minutes until you can take a sip of water or like even take a step like to one side because we're all concentrating and we're always sensitive about dead air between the songs andrew in particular um is always saying like oh my god let's go like someone's dicking around or chris is telling some elaborate joke that just is not gonna land and he's just trying to just like he thinks he's talking to fill dead space but we're all actually waiting for him (laughs) so it's just like this self-fulfilling prophecy um that's not the right term but it's it's um yeah i I was pushing for for segues and stuff and i'll i'll do it sometimes like i was i even snuck in like the end of layla a few times um (laughs) as a joke and uh, i think someone told me to stop doing that (laughs) um but yeah i was always trying to get us to do the ns i mean i love the ns such a rad song Mm. so fun for me the roads intro Mm the big slap back like John Lennon piano with lots of empty space in the verse and then big Hammond organs in the chorus and a huge outro where we get to scream our heads off and say bye-bye and all that stuff. It's like kicks so much ass and Andrew's game, like he'll do it. But, um, after a tour, like songs tend to, they do tend to get retired. Like when I sort of joined, I had this philosophy, like, that you could almost break the set into three equal parts. There would be about 30% songs that you have to play. Mm. These are songs like, you know, good and everyone underwhelmed, etc. Then you could 
get away with 30% new stuff, whatever the newest record is that we're touring. And then the other third would be just mixed bag stuff, stuff that I would want to hear, you know, like that's where you get like the NS or you get sugar tune or, um, uh, who are you talking to or, mm. um, nice. uh, weird stuff like that, that I wanted to hear just as a fan. Um, and you know, that worked for a little while, but, uh, it's just, it's so political and tough to come up with a set list that, uh, it, it really tends to stay pretty, pretty solid night to night on tour. The, the guys want to use certain guitars and stuff and that, that puts limitations. Like Patrick wants to play like his tally for three songs in a row. So those three songs are kind of married and it's like, Oh, we'll swap out, put unkind in the middle. And he's like, ah, oh, fuck that's in drop D, you know, I got to change guitars, blah, 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 blah. So the set list is a pain. Um, Chris usually does it. I'm looking for those opportunities to kind of fill dead space, but I, I haven't really been doing it as much lately and I can't give you a good reason why. Uh, maybe I'm just getting lazy. We just aren't, we haven't been playing as much of the old stuff or have we? I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's great, man. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to quickly touch on uh, just really quickly. You mentioned 48 portraits. I don't know if you have, I mean, it's a complete mystery how that song came about. It's just so insane sounding and it goes in so many different directions. And we've done, when we did a review of the album, we kind of, or I at least came up with my, un, my fake version of the song, like splitting it into the 11 parts and giving them each a title and stuff. And I don't know, just maybe like a quick little insight into that. I mean, I have to assume sure. that a lot of it's Andrew himself, but I, I, you know, there's a feeling inside that there's a lot of you in there too. Yeah, he recorded most of that at home. Mm, okay, cool. Um, and they are individual songs. They have names. Um, oh. We did one. If you saw me and Andrew's live stream from his garage, did right, either of you course, see that? Of course. Yeah. We did the one called The Lesson, which right. is yeah. um, it's the second to last part um, with the children's choir yeah. Yeah. where we're saying a prayer for you and that whole thing. They are individual songs. Um, I hope Andrew doesn't think I'm giving too much away but uh he was just he was just in a real creative zone um i think he dug his dad's old drum kit out and set it up in his living room in his house mm, um, right, yeah. and was doing i think he was learning how to use garage band or maybe he had logic i don't know but he was just kind of mostly dicking around um and frankly i don't know at what point he decided that it was going to be an 18 minute song um but uh, he was sort of threatening to do it for a while. And then I think when they, yeah, it just, he just said, fuck it, I'm doing it. And I mean, you know, there was three and a half minutes at the beginning of barking dogs and banging <laughs> pots and pans and stuff. But yeah, I did, I did get to play quite a bit on that. I sang a lot and there's a couple cool guitar parts. There's like a baritone guitar mm-hmm. um, in sort of part two. Um, when Chris kind of takes over and it goes to that real nice kind of melodic minor section when he kind of goes, if you really want you know, that part. Hmm. And then, um, this cool baritone guitar kind of goes like, bow, 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 bow. I got to play that. Nice. Um, and then it kind of gets reprised at the end in the lesson. 
but it's in a major key and it kind of goes do 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 right when the kids are singing the same prayer for you part like i was i was all excited about doing callbacks and um and repeating little bits um from earlier songs like you know they always they always do that stuff like um shadow of love and to beverly terrace and um it, I, I always I like the joke. Um, I think it was Stephen Colbert. He was interviewing Rush, and he said, "Did you ever write a song that was so long that you were influenced by yourself <laughs> by the beginning of the song later in the song?" So I was. I think I was trying to do that on Forty Eight Portraits. That's awesome. I was like, "This song is so long that we're, we're different. We're we're more influenced at the end." Yeah. It was um, it was definitely pieced together. Uh, I don't want to shatter any illusions or anything, but it's not. It was not recorded in one take, and it was not recorded live off the floor. Um, and Andrew was writing lyrics on the spot. Um, I've got a few pretty good photos that I took that day of him scribbling and scratching, and uh, he was um, he was making a lot of that up lyrically as we went along. He had most of the music stuff down. And uh, it would have been, I guess, right around when Gord Downey died. Yeah. Because, yeah. uh, or is that 48? No, that's, that's 44 teenagers that's again. That's 44 teenagers, yeah. It's the, no, it's the number thing it's that's, the, yeah. that's, that's fucking with me. Sorry, guys. I'm, I gotta go further back. Um, yeah, because Commonwealth was like 2013, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, 2014 was, it, was when it came 2014 out. 2014 yeah. released, yeah. Yeah, so we would have been recording it in 2013. We went to uh, went to Todor's place to do the piano on Three Sisters, um, which I think was the last thing we did. That was the final day of recording that record, mm-hmm. um, and that turned out really good. Three Sisters, yeah. man, oh, I love that song. Oh, you mentioned Three Sisters it's, earlier in your origin story, and I was like, oh, well. that's right. <laughs> ah, you, you 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 pat you picked up on that. I did that on purpose. I thought oh, Robbie's really? gonna like this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you also mentioned uh, Robbie's Andrew and Chris too in your original story. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> Uncle Andrew had a friend Chris that he met at the uh, 1908 World Fair in St. Louis. It's all true. Um, and Robbie, I got to give you a shout out. You're the only one that noticed that I played the uh, piano part from "Summer's My Season" in "So Far So Good." <laughs> Amazing. I think. I think you were the only one that noticed that. And that was a very deliberate Easter egg. Um, I remember recording so far so good. That was really fun. Um, what a song. We had done a... Yeah, yeah, it's really good. We did a demo for it. We had our friend Stu come to town. Mm. Stu Haydock, who was in the Golden Dogs. Yeah, man. Um, and we were jamming, the three of us. Um, and there's a pretty good demo of that song of Stu on drums and me on Wurlitzer and Chris singing and playing bass. Mm. And I was like, this is, this is heavy. This is going to kick ass. Mm. I was really excited for that one. And then we were doing it at the space. Um, and Chris, uh, let me play, uh, piano and organ all over it. And, um, the other guys were giving him a hard time about when he sings the big O at the beginning of sort of the middle eight, when he goes, Oh, what does it matter? And like, everyone was bugging him that that O was just like, so out of nowhere. And like, (laughs) just like totally took you out of the moment. And they were kind of teasing him about it. But I was like, are you kidding? That's the best part of the whole song. So great. And then I was playing the, there's an organ 
and a piano kind of playing this eighth note chord. And I remember looking at Chris, I said, does it sound too Russian? And uh, he sort of laughed and I was like, that's what I'm going for. I'm definitely going for a Russian sound. <laughs> and he liked that. So we kept it in. And then I, I played note for note, the summer's my season lick to come out of that. <clears throat> I was always bugging them to play summer's my season. Cause it's probably my favorite song, oh, but um, there's nothing for Patrick to do. There's no guitar. In it. So um, I know Chris would do it sometimes in the encore on the Navy blues tour right. when they used to travel with the roads. Yeah. But, we did it a few times, and we even did a B-Sides tour, I think. Um, a show. A, certainly a show at the Horseshoe, right? Was it the Horseshoe? No, it was the... Uh, or was it Dakota? We did something at the Dakota. Oh, yeah, that yeah, was, that was, was when... probably uh, that night. When Hit and Run came out. I remember that. And it was all it was largely yeah. sort of like B-Sides and... Yeah. yeah, that would have been like late 09, probably. Yeah. Right, yeah. I think that's right. I think that's when I broke my wrist. Oh. Uh, this is a funny story. If you guys have a, another, if you're if you're interested, um, we were. Um, it was right when 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 was Scott Pilgrim? Do you guys remember? Yeah, two thousand ten. Right, yeah, shot in shot in oh nine. Okay. Came out in oh ten. Yeah, oh ten. Okay, yeah. So that that checks out. It was they were making Scott Pilgrim, and Chris was involved. Um, he was teaching some of the actors how to play, yep. how to look like they were playing music, and. <laughs> Uh, I guess he'd gotten to know uh, Edgar Wright, the director, a little bit. And I think someone was suggesting, like, hey, you should put, like, some Sloan songs in in uh, the movie. So we were at the studio. We were rehearsing something. And um, Chris and Jay were on foot, but I had my bike that day. And I had volunteered to go to the post office and send some Sloan CDs to Edgar in the mail. For consideration, I think, for Scott Pilgrim. And he was in the in London at the time, so um they had to be like mailed over there. And I said, I'll do it. So I was gonna I put a whole bunch of Sloan CDs in a tote bag and I hopped on my bike and I started paddling away from the studio. And Chris and Jay are only two blocks ahead of me. I can see them, and I'm only a block from the studio, and the tote bag and it was on my right shoulder and it slipped down my forearm and onto my wrist and the cds got caught in the spokes on my front wheel on my bike and i flipped over the handlebars and i landed with my full weight on my left wrist and i'm splayed out like kind of in shock in a lot of pain and i was sort of like guys guys and they're just like they can't hear me they're just keep walking and i'm just like lied there flat out for a minute i'm just like oh fuck what am i gonna do so i got back on my bike and i'm like man my left wrist is really sore but i just shook it out a few times and i'm like ah walk it off i'll just get back on my bike i'm i'm fine but i gotta make it to the post office it's getting kind of late and they close like at five or something so i got to the post office and i tried to lock up my bike and my hand just will not hold the lo- the weight of the lock like it just mm. it's just flopping over disconnected completely from the rest of my body and i'm like that doesn't look good but oh well i've really got to get these cds in the mail so i go into the post office i walk up to the counter and i just emptied the tote bag on the counter and it's comp- just the cds are in shattered just shards mm. of plastic just a bag of garbage i dump on the counter and i say i've got to get these cds to england like in a hurry 
And the girl working there, she's like, what are you talking about? This is garbage. These are smashed. These don't even look like CDs. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. It's like for a movie. And she's like, get the fuck out of here. So I was like, okay, I guess I failed. And um, I get back on my bike again. And uh, I called Mike and I said, Mike, I didn't make it to the post office. I broke the CDs. And he's like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I, I, I fucked it up. I didn't. I fell off my bike and broke the CDs. And he's like, ah, whatever. I'm making chili. Come on over and have some chili. And I said, okay. So I got back on my bike again. <clears throat> and I was biking along Bloor Street right by Christy Pitts. Um, and I was biking past a walk-in clinic. And I just, my arm was really sore. And I said, you know, I'm just going to walk in, have them take a look at this real quick. And then I'm going to Mike's for chili. And um, I walked in and waited and the doctor came out and he said, what's the matter? I said, well, my left wrist, I hit it pretty hard when I fell off my bike. And he literally touched it for one second, like with his thumb and his middle finger. And he goes, that's broken. Hmm. You broke. That's don't go straight to emergency right now. You, your wrist is broken. And I was like, no, come on. Don't say that. He's like, Trust me, don't ride your bike, get in a cab and go straight to emergency. And I was like, oh, fuck's sake. So I got in a cab. I went to Western Hospital and went into emergency. And I had I had really impressively broken my wrist um, and I needed surgery. And uh, eventually I got a bolt put in my uh, put in my wrist. So I had to call Mike back and I said, Mike, I'm not going to make it chilly. I'm at emergency. And I think I've broken my wrist. And he's like, no, shit. So I went back a couple weeks later and got a bolt put in there and had a cast on it. But still had to play a few shows. And I think the Dakota was one of them. Right. Wow. There's pictures of me setting up. Uh, I had a sling and everything. And uh, I had to play just, I had them cut the cast kind of short on my on my palm so i i could actually play piano still mm. with my uh left hand with my four fingers if it was my right hand i would have been in bigger trouble but mm. um being the shitty piano player i am i don't need i don't use my left hand that much so um we did one show at the dakota with a cast and we did one show in kitchener maybe just like some outdoor thing but uh yeah i had to play two shows in a cast which totally sucked we've all had a few injuries that's the other joke is that I've I have had to cover for everybody um except Jay. Right. Jay is um has never missed a show. Um I think if Jay couldn't make it the show would not go on. But uh mm. uh I covered for Chris when he got hit by his drunk driver hence the hit and run EP. Right. Um we had to play at um we played at the amphitheater. It was uh Virgin Fest. It was us and the Pixies and like Ben Harper. And uh, I played bass and Chris sang uh, with his arm in a sling. Hmm. And then, oh, yeah, I had to play drums, too. Um, Oh, God, we played with Chickenfoot (laughs) out in Halifax. Chickenfoot, of course, is uh, Sammy Hagar, um, Will, or no, not Will. Satriani. Yeah, Satriani, Chad Smith, and Mike Anthony. Not Will Ferrell. (laughs) And you know what? They were super nice. They were the nicest guys. Um, They were very accessible. They set up a little tiny, um, like a V 
drum kit and some tiny amps outside their trailer backstage and they actually did a little warm-up as a band and um you know they they didn't have four separate trailers or anything like they they hung out as a band they met people as a band they gave us lots of their time like i was like drinking tequila with sammy hagar i'm like this like and i told him i'm like sammy what are you doing like how come i'm allowed this close to you like you should be in your hotel like not engaging at all and he was like ah man like we're he's like we're a band like we're just hanging out like same as you guys like we're we're a new band we're not like this is a new project and we're just you know we're not trying to be like that and i was like that's so cool like oh my god and give me some more tequila (laughs) they were um they were very friendly and they're very sweet but i had to play drums oh god Uh, it's, it's not a not a I, I don't envy anybody who has to fill Andrew's shoes. It's oh, it's not it's not fair. Um, I'm not very good. I'm good enough, but I'm not very good. And we had to play out. It was outside, summertime. And um, God, what was the first song? I, I don't I don't know. But uh, Chris couldn't play drums, obviously, on Andrew's song, so I had to. And I counted it in like. You know, we've got the monitors dialed. It's outside, so everything's mic'd and everything's in monitors. It's not like it's in a club where you can just hear everything acoustically. Mm-hmm. Like, we're all spread out on a pretty big stage. And turns out I don't hit the drums as hard as Andrew does. So I did, like, I went, like, one, two, three, four, and started playing. And instantly everybody turned around and looked at me to watch because they couldn't hear me at all. So the only way we could keep time at all was if they watched me play with their backs to the crowd. It was just pathetic. Um, but, you know, I hobbled through it, and uh, thankfully I didn't have to do it too many times. I did it. We got Taylor Knox filled in at V-Fest. Um, there's some pretty good photos of that. But um, in Halifax, they weren't about to fly anybody out, I guess. So I just said i'll do it i'll play on andrew's songs and uh, yeah we probably played people of the sky and like um god i think we played like uh emergency 911 <laughs> like, it's just like just i'm just terrible like it it's so kick-ass when chris does it and uh, when he goes nuts on people of the sky and stuff mm-hmm. and then uh i had to cover for patrick <clears throat> patrick sort of took a break um in the middle of the tour, we were in um, Burlington, Vermont. What happened that day? I don't. I I try. I try not to. I well, I do not. I do not drink um, before we start the show. I kind of learned that the hard way. Um, and but for some reason, we, me and Andrew and I think Cam, we decided to go out for pizza in New Haven to this famous pizza place called Frank Pepe's. And uh, for whatever reason, I decided we were going to get some a couple pitchers of beer. So kind of got like half cut at lunch and then went back to the club and started drinking. And we were played. We, this is when we were doing the two sets with no opener thing. And we played the first set and it was fine. And then um, I started doing laundry in between sets <laughs> Because uh, the venue had laundry, and I was in the middle of putting my stuff in the dryer, and my phone lit the crew, the group chat lit up, and it was like Patrick's gonna sit out the second set. Greg, you're on, you got to play guitar, and I was like, oh my god, like Jeez. I'm drunk, 
and I'm just like, I guess, I guess I'll do, I guess I can do, I guess I can play like the solo and snowsuit sound. I guess I can do, you know, the, uh, good in everyone. So, um, we did a few shows as a four piece. We did like the key to Bala. We did like, mm. um, the red dog in Peterborough. Um, cause Patrick couldn't be there. And, so and then yeah we did a few things with when andrew had the broken rib and i had to sit in and then when chris had the broken arm we i played drums for him and bass for him uh so i've covered for everybody except jay (laughs) if jay's not there there's no show yeah so crazy uh cool so before we wrap up i definitely want to touch on some of your i guess you could call it extracurricular activities um so if you don't mind maybe i don't know if, if you want to start with one previously i mean i assume that cola wars was sort of the of the three, if I could talk about New Age Doom, obviously, and then the collaboration with Lee Scratch Perry, which is insane to be, you know, collaborating with an icon like that. But uh, is there one that you'd prefer to touch on first? Like, you mean, how far back are we going? Like, do you want to talk about just things that are on the go right now uh, outside of sort of the Sloan world? Because, I mean, I've played in lots of other bands as well. Yeah, oh, t- I've played touch on, lots on it, of records. Yeah, but yeah as I mean, far if you want to touch on... I've... Please, yeah, White Horse. I know I saw you with White Horse a couple years ago as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, Luke and I, Luke Doucette, is a great singer and songwriter character, although he'd probably hate it if he heard me call him that. I'm sure he's not listening. Uh, I met Luke a long time ago. We Actually, it turned out we ended up living across the street from each other in Vancouver, but we didn't even know it until way later. Um, But back in probably 2000, we sort of cross paths uh, through some mutual friends in the Vancouver music scene. And then when he came to Toronto, uh, he was making his own records called Luke Doucette uh, and the White Falcon was the name of his band. And he tapped me and a bunch of other really great players, a guy named Taylor Knox on drums, who you should all know from the Golden Dogs by now. And uh, Darcy Yates from Flash Lightning. And I think he plays in Bahamas band and lots of other amazing projects he's just a super guy and we were a pretty good rock band and then he hired andrew scott to produce a record that he made in probably 2008 um called the steel city trawler record and we did that at the rogue studios and it was awesome just andrew basically played everything they played it they made the record just the two of them and then dragged me into play a bit of piano and scream my head off and some backing vocals for a few days. And it was so much fun. Um, so then you we know, toured. I've never, I've never, I've never seen this before. I've never, I didn't know this existed and oh, wow. okay. I'm going to binge on this later. Holy Good. Crap. Yeah. We've just un- unlocked a new, uh, a new level, I guess, of, of Sloan stuff. You should stuff you should know. So yeah. Uh, Andrew Scott produced drummed, played bass, you know, left his mark all over it um cool sounding record you know great drums great drum sounds uh uh, if you had checked out if you had bothered ken to check out my uh spotify playlist that's uh, all the stuff on there that i've been invited to play on over the last 20 years you would have uh you would heard at least one of those songs i I forgot to do Um, my homework i'm sorry um after moving to toronto uh, you know, Sloan's busy, but they're never that busy. You know, there's, there's, there's often downtime. So in between those records and tours, like parallel play and uh double cross, like there were years 
that were lean, you know, so I was, I was able to go on tour with Jason Collette and, uh, hang out with those guys and just had a blast and went South by Southwest. And, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty quick that I was able to shoehorn myself into the, into the small Toronto music scene because I sort of had that bag of tricks, you know, I can, I can wear a lot of hats at once. Um, and I'm, I'm cheap, you know, I, it's cheaper than hiring three guys to sing keyboard, sing backups and play keyboards and tambourine. Why not just get one guy to do it all at once? So, um, I enjoy that role. Um, but it, what it means is what I'm, my point is what I'm getting to is that I've never really bothered to have my own songs or my own band. Uh, I've, I've had much more fun, um, in the sideman sort of producer role um you know uh, me and jamie arner i talked about him a little bit we had our high school band you know called team strike force and mm. we would play you know local shows and pubs and stuff and i i would write lyrics as fast as i could because i hated the process and i hated uh thinking of anything interesting to say and i did, never felt like i did and i would just steal melodies from other songs that i liked i would just full-on steal a full Weezer song and just rip it off and shoehorn it into these other chords that me and Jay had come up with. And obviously nobody cared because we were playing like seven people just recording on four track. And again, it was just learning process. So, but uh, Jay of course has, has really uh, been practicing his songwriting and his producing. And uh, I think he's quite in demand now in, in Vancouver. If you want anything recorded, you have a rock band talk to Jay Arner. I'm sure he's easy to find. Um, but yeah, so I, um, should I do, have a, did I do the Cola Wars origin story? It's, it's fun. It's let's hear it, it, man. It'll be, I've been waiting for, I'll I'll try to make it quick. (laughs) I'll try to make it fairly quick. Um, but I like this story. I love how it came about. So Sloan was on tour. We were on the 12 tour. This would be April of 2018. 12 had just come out and we were going west and jay came to me one day uh we were somewhere in the prairies and he said check this out i got this neat message from a guy in victoria or nanaimo actually i should uh, should say it's on vancouver island this cool dude named dave reed who uh, i guess jay had been in touch with before i'd never met uh but um dave reed is a just a cool dude runs a record label runs a recording studio i think has a record store has his own bands like he's another guy in, in demand in in um in in bc for he's a wicked bass player he's just like a, the coolest dude and he and jay were friends and he said jay said to me look i got a message from dave reed he's playing and recording and producing and helping this dude make a record this guy named twink and twink uh is a legend he's he's an original uh 60s like this he twink's an older guy he was definitely part of the london england underground psychedelic kind of cool uh, like the pink floyd the edges of the pink floyd scene uh he was in a really awesome band called um uh tomorrow who then I think turned into, um, oh shit. Yeah. I hope you can edit this. They were called, um, 
we'll drop the name in. Yeah, just drop it in. I always want to say SF Sorrow, but that's the name of the record. Oh, um, the um, the pretty things, uh, the pretty things. Andrew's yeah, yeah, yeah. Andrew's favorite band yeah. in the mid to late nineties. Andrew's yeah, obsessed with the pretty things. Anyway, this this guy Twink was in that band, and he was okay. like hanging out with like Sid Barrett, and they had best friends with like Hawkwind and Lemmy, and they played like the Isle of Wight festival. Like this, it's, it's a dude's a legend. But um, and of course, Jay's an expert. I, you know, a legend if you're a, if you're a record collector, <laughs> which I am not. But um, anyway, I, I quickly got to learn how amazing this guy Twink is. And anyway, the message from Dave was, I'm making a record with Twink. Do you guys, you guys are in Nanaimo the day that we're going to be in the studio and the studio is like a block from your venue. You guys should just come and meet Twink and say hi to me and to the band. And like Ian Blurton is in the band. Another one of my heroes. Um, best dude. Uh, I'll never forget. Ian was so kind to me at little sidebar here. Like back when me and Jay Arner were in our high school bands and we're, this is 96. Like I'd be sneaking in to see bands at the town pump. And, uh, you know, I was 15 and, uh, I was, I thought Ian Blurton was so cool and change of heart was the coolest band. And, uh, all I knew, like, I, the only thing I could think of was you'd take your tape of your songs and you throw it on the stage during the band's show. And of course, the band will listen to it, right? Like, they would love that. Um, and that's how you get, like, discovered. And then me and Ian Blurton are going to be best friends. And I was like, this is 15 year old me thinking this. But the joke's on me, of course, because turns out all of that is true. And Ian Blurton is the coolest dude you can imagine. I, I got a, I think I got a letter from him in the actual mail and he was like, man, your songs are cool. And like, you're I like, I like your band. And I was like, this is, this, this can't be real. But at the time I, I, it seemed normal. Like, cause I thought that's what, how the world worked, but little did I know, but um, it's, uh, you know, it, it would never be that good again with anybody else, but only with Ian. Cause he's the best. Um, so anyway, Ian and I became friends and have kept in touch this whole time. You know, it's 25 years now. Uh, anyway, so when I heard Ian Blurton was going to be at the session, of course, I got extra excited. Um, but I wanted to meet this guy, Twink, and I wanted to see what they were doing and, and check out the session. So Jay is like, you should come with me. And I was like, absolutely, I'd love to. So um, we get to Nanaimo and we're parked near the venue and the studio is like literally a block away. So... Uh, we walk over, we knock on the door of this awesome recording studio. It's owned by one of the guys from Swollen Members. Um, so I think we're there to say hi. We walk in the door and there's like a documentary crew making a documentary and it's full of cameras and lights and there's like all these people milling around. And literally we walk in and Dave, Dave Reed is like, hey, check it out. The Sloan guys are here. And so we shake hands a little bit. Oh, this is Twink. This is Jay. You should meet Jay. This is Greg. And then they're like, instantly they're like, okay, uh, let's roll. You want to play some keys? And I'm like, oh, you gotta be fucking kidding me. Uh, and there's a, you know, where, here's the camera, here's the lights and a, here's a mini Moog, you know, like just pick whatever you want. And I was like, oh, okay, great. Like, I guess, yeah, I was not prepared for this, but, um, 
anyway, I ended up playing uh, all these vintage cool synths on a on a bunch of Twinks records on this this that new album. So that cool. yeah, it is really cool, and I I I have told Dave a million times thanks for having us and uh, thanks for including us. Jay played guitar, like he played this rad guitar part. Um, we were both definitely put on the spot, and I think I think Jay was like. I have to do this, but I think he was probably a bit, bit nervous, but he, uh, there's a cool song called fear the unknown. I think it's probably on that Spotify playlist again. If you kind of listen in verse two, this neat guitar part comes in and it's, uh, it's, that's Jay. And so anyway, a good time was had by all, um, uh, lots of high fives, lots of hugs, good times. Andrew popped over and Andrew got to meet Twink as well. And, um, got some good destiny. photos and yeah, it was meant to be. And, but it was just, that was it. That was the end of it. That was just what we did that day. And then we went to the show and played our concert and kept going. And I didn't really think that much more about it until, um, I guess probably about a year later, I got a random Facebook message from Dave Reed and he said, yo, my band, he has this awesome band, um, called Anunnaki which is just him and a guy named Arlen, who is also in another cool band called Wolf Parade. And they have this cool sort of psych doom band called Anunnaki. And Dave uh, sent me an email and said, I'm coming to Toronto with Anunnaki. We're on tour. We have a Toronto show booked at the Monarch Tavern uh, late July. Uh, I think you should open as a keyboard wizard just by yourself you should bring down a whole bunch of keyboards and do like a half hour opening set just you because i thought what you did with twink was so rad and i was like no fucking way <laughs> i'm not doing that are you crazy I've never done anything like that before in my life like by myself no um so he kind of kept bugging me and I, I started to feel sheepish and I really didn't want to chicken out, but I was, it was a scary, uh, concept. I was like, these guys are going to find out, like, I'm just such a imposter. Like they're, they're going to know that I'm just bullshitting and, uh, I will be exposed for the fraud that I am. And there's no way I can't be in a room with other real musicians again, like not to imply that, uh, I'm not surrounded by real musicians every day, of course, but like, these are like, this was i felt like i was really trespassing in their world um you know like i'm quite comfortable in the in the sloan canon you know like in that where there's rules like you know we play piano and we just try to sound like the stones this like this is like keyboards that i've never seen before and like i don't know i just felt like i was going to be exposed but i said off oh, to hell with it you know my my good buddy matt and i we've always had a saying that when we get asked to do something we don't know how to do, we just say yes and just figure out how to do it in as much time as you have. It's like, yeah, I'll show up in two weeks and I'll, I'll help you like build a deck, but it's like, yeah, I've got two weeks to learn how to build a deck, you know? So I said, yeah, I'll come down and do this and then I'll figure out what I'm going to do. And so I again, talked to my, my best buddy, Alex down in North Carolina, who's a synth, wizard in his own right very talented guy i called him i said alex will know what to do and i said i'm thinking i'm just gonna bring a bunch of noisemakers and just make like really crazy feedback noise for 20 minutes and just kind of 
try to freak everybody out. And Alex said, anybody can do that. You, you, you know what you're doing. You've got this, you can figure out something cool. And he, he gave me some really good advice. So I went to Longham McQuaid and I rented because this shit's expensive. Like I needed stuff that I didn't have. So I, I rented a whole bunch of this synth gear and then brought it all home and set it all up and spent hours on the phone with Alex. And he held my hand and walked me through it, told me what to do and where to patch all these cables in and stuff like this is keyboards that don't have keys, um, is sort of the world that I was stepping into. This is synthesized music that's generated without the use of traditional, like black and white uh, piano keys as you yeah. would imagine if you when you picture a synthesizer is what you're expecting but this was this is music you make by plugging cables into jacks and right. seeing what happens so you're becoming Karl Heinz Stockhausen like yeah. you have to get into that you're you have to go back in history yeah yeah and there's there's lots of good examples of music that, um I'm trying to learn and and um discover this world as much as I can it's a very interesting world um, like Jean-Michel Jarre is, I think I'm saying that right. And, um, uh, John Carpenter, like, uh, all his amazing horror movie soundtracks, like he did all the music and it's just awesome stuff. So, um, Alex was very helpful and I decided I was just going to get this done. And I also shout out to Kevin Hilliard. I hired him to be my lighting guy because that's 90% of this, of this kind of show is, you know, it's almost just more of an art installation, like a living art installation, rather than getting on stage and banging out 12 songs and, you know, uh, playing a song with a chorus that people can sing along to. This is, I was trying to do more of a, I don't know, just something different. So I got Kevin to come down with like all of the Sloan lights. Like it was, it was a lot of work for him. And I think every I, tour together. Yeah. He, I think he was having fun. Um, and he wouldn't accept uh, his payment was, I think I literally bought him a slice of pizza. Um, and I uh, thank you very much, Kevin. You really made it a huge difference. He brought up two smoke machines and, um, all of the lights. So I just did this thing. I just got up on stage and, um, at, stood at a table full of cables <laughs> and, you know, Kevin did a great job making it look cool. Um, filled the place with smoke and i sort of had a vague outline of this 20 to 25 minute piece of music that i was gonna perform and i did um and it was it was cool it was really cool uh you know a lot of my friends came and i think a lot of them were surprised afterwards they were like that was actually cool i, I, I it started off real slow and <clears throat> But it, it, it went somewhere and it, and it, it, I really enjoyed doing it. And Chris and Jay were there, very supportive, very encouraging, taking tons of photos and lots of video and documenting everything properly as they do. And just uh, really, you know, helping keep the boat afloat. Um, and then that was it. That was the end of that. And I was like, OK, thank God I never have to do that again because it was nerve wracking, but it was fun. But then immediately Jay and Chris start into me and they're like, you got to make a record. That was, that was amazing. Are you kidding? You have this thing that you, you just did a thing and like this, this is, you're nuts. If you don't like make a Cola Wars record, it's, or sorry. Oh, the name. I forgot about the name. <laughs> uh, 
I needed a name. And the whole thing was Dave was pestering me, uh, Dave Reed, because it was his show. And he, he kept texting me. He's like, um, what's your thing called? I got to make these posters today. And I was like, I don't know. Fuck. I don't, I never thought about that. I need a name. So I had a handful of names and I never, I didn't like any of them. So I just started asking around. I asked Jamie Arner and he, he had a couple good suggestions. Um, and I just said, who's got a good band name that you're not using? Cause, uh, I need something fast. Like I need it. And Dave was really bugging me. He's like, you got an hour cause I'm going to the printer. And I was like, Oh shit. So I asked my great friend, Evan Weisblatt, who uh, really, you should have him. He should have his own entire episode. Evan Weisblatt, I'll, I'll give you the quick version. Like this kid, I call him a kid. He's probably 40 now. But when he was like 15, he made a record called with a band called The American Flag. And he played everything himself. And much like my throwing my tape on a stage for ian blurton i believe evan threw his tape on stage at guided by voices and um bob pollard within 24 hours had declared evan weisblatt his favorite living songwriter and invited the american flag to go on tour opening for them um and uh, evan's incredible like he's incredible amazing amazing songwriter um we have been working on a new record together the two of us with Brendan McGuire, who is also part of the Sloan family. He recorded uh, Between the Bridges and Pretty Together. Um, But Evan is his own worst enemy. He's just like, he's so meticulous and uh, starts, starts over from scratch like every two weeks. So it's been like three years we've been trying to work on his new record and it's not going anywhere, but he's got the best songs, best lyrics, incredible sense of melody like he he's got it like he has got it and uh, i called evan and i said evan i need a band name and he's like i've got it i've got the fucking name and you i don't think he knew i was gonna use it i think he's a bit pissed off at me but he said your band is called the cola wars and i was like oh my god i love it so i shopped that around a bit and everybody told me to ditch the the kind of like the facebook and i was like I did really like the Cola Wars, but um, I think everyone was right. I think Cola Wars just, it worked. And I was, it was in, you know, it speaks to a time anyway. And I, the sure. influence of the 80s is, is, is all over this music that I ended up making. So I think it just fit perfectly. So um, <clears throat> I was called Cola Wars and uh, they put it on the poster. And Chris and Jay immediately, as soon as I was packing up my gear, they're like, you got to make a record. You make it a record. You make it a record. We're putting it out on Murder Records. We'll help you. We'll do everything. And Chris is like, I'll do all your work. He's like, you're halfway there. Like you got all the, I got like all these great photos. Look at this great video I took tonight. Like you're doing it. You're doing it. And I was like, okay, 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 okay. So we, and Jay was like, I've got all the, like, we are an amazing resource. Please use us. And I was like, okay, okay, fine. So. I started recording and it just turned into this thing. And Chris and Jay were so much help. Mike Nelson, so much help. Um, Alex from North Carolina, my synth guru buddy, always so much help. So I had a lot of help, but it is, it is just me. Oh, and Jay Arner does have a, um, he did a vocoder bit for me, which is very special. Um, uh, I really, I loved it. Um, you know, it came out, it's on this cola colored transparent vinyl. Love it. Jay Love did it. this, helped me and Chris helped me with this beautiful cover. Um, 
Simon Evers, who has done all of the uh, Sloan artwork packaging and stuff for the last few years. Um, amazing graphic designer, awesome artist, awesome illustrator. Um, and we got um, the guy that did the playing cards, uh, Steve Manali. He designed a font for me and was a huge help. And uh, then it was just like, you know, Chris and Jay are just, uh, they're so much, they have so much energy and fun. They're so much, they're so contagious, like when it comes to these projects. And I, I they were like, you got to make a video. You got to make, oh my God, we're making a poster. Like, are you kidding? We're making a deluxe. Like they were thinking like five albums in the future and reissue box set basically all the time. So um, I mentioned John Carpenter earlier. Uh, I'm a big fan. And uh, there's this amazing John Carpenter movie called They Live, <clears throat> which stars Ro- Rowdy Roddy Piper, um, who most people don't know is was from Saskatoon. And um, I was just a big wrestling fan growing up, big Roddy Piper fan growing up. And this That's movie is to Rob's ears. Yeah, this <laughs> They Live is just the I bet he's going to get something. He's going to get some. He's getting some memorabilia, some piece of ephemera. Yeah. Um. <laughs> It, um so we we made this movie poster oh there it is yeah roddy piper mcdonald's cup that's great chris helped me make this poster that was based off of like it's a direct homage to the poster for they live and again steve manelli did an amazing job came up with this beautiful illustration for the font um if you have a visual this would be a good time to cut to that um and, you know, Chris took care of all the printing and like, uh, it's just amazing. These guys offer me so much and, uh, I, I hope I thank them enough because I couldn't have done it without them. I would have been so lost. So, um, and then we shot like a, a, a trailer, like we, uh, Chris and Jay, Chris, one of Chris's favorite things to do, I guess, is recreating classic movie posters or movie scene, like, you know, the beginning of the good and everyone video, like we basically did that. Uh, took a scene from they live and uh chris and harris who is our guitar tech on the on tour with us harris took some of the photos he took the album cover photo as well and we had a day we had an afternoon free one day on tour in detroit we needed a big city i think the the movie takes place in los angeles but uh we shot our scenes uh, on the mean streets of downtown detroit and just faithfully recreated the the trailer, or at least one scene from the movie, shot for shot. And again, Chris and Harris so generous with their time, so so patient with me, like directing me. And it's freezing cold, like just absolutely fucking frigid that day in Detroit. And uh, like Chris is holding my parka in between for me while I'm on camera, and then throwing it around me when we're when we're done shooting. And um, yeah, just. I'm lucky to have those guys. So, uh, I was able to make the record. Uh, it, unfortunately the pandemic hit that threw everything a little bit behind schedule, but the record, uh, I was able to get them shipped to us on tour and start selling them from the stage, which again, I'm so grateful for them uh, allowing me to even do that. But, um, Sloan's fans are so wonderful. And so, um, just interested in anything thank god because uh, otherwise i'd be sitting on a box of albums that nobody wants like nobody wants but um 
it was cool. It was cool. I was able to, all I wanted to do was basically just recoup because it's very, very, very expensive to print and manufacture your own physical LPs. But, um, I, I, I did it and it, I, it's only because of you, the faithful Sloancast listeners, I'm sure most of you are the reason that I was able to break even. So, uh, a million thanks to all of you for that. <clears throat> yeah, and if uh, listeners, if you don't yet have the Cola Wars album, if I'm not mistaken, it is available on Bandcamp. It is. There are a few on Bandcamp. Those are the ones that I sell directly to you. Um, so I have to have them in my house, and I think I might only have one or two. Um, but uh, other than that, you can get them. There is a Sloan like an official Sloan merchandise store. Um, the retailer is, is called kill the eight and they have, I'm just going to see if I can find it up here. Um, yeah, here it is. Uh, if you go to shop dot K T eight merch.com slash collections slash murder records. Um, there's my record and there's also the Matthew Grimson record, um, which Chris, uh, probably bolstered by the amazing success of the Cola Wars record, decided to take one on of his own um, that uh, he and Chris, uh, sorry, Chris and Andrew helped uh, and Matt Murphy, I believe played on the record as well. Um, a, uh, 15 songs that they recorded on a four track back in 1995. Uh, and Matt Grimson, unfortunately passed away in, in 2018. Um, and Chris, I think just really felt that this record, had to be out there so he took it upon himself to uh to manufacture it as well so uh, and that came out on murder records as well i believe it's number 66 i think or cola wars is number 65 so those are both still available if you're uh, if you're interested get them both um and there's even a few copies of the cola wars record left that has the deluxe poster bundle so get it while you can um it's the full package i can i can faith, faithfully as a early craft work and there you Boards go. of canada fan right very highly recommend this so listeners if you're if you haven't already you know what's stopping you but <laughs> greg I, I want you to to kind of walk us through your latest project um, sure which is hot, hot off the press yeah and you know, for, for sad and unfortunate reasons, very pertinent to right yep. now as well. Um, you have, you had a gig with Lee Perry with the legendary producer, musician, collaborator, Lee Scratch Perry. Can you maybe walk us through that? Sure. Yeah. I, um, Lee Scratch Perry is, uh, just an unbelievable character and, um, I'm again, just so lucky to have even the smallest footnote in his illustrious career. But um, there is a guy in Vancouver named Eric J. Breitenbach, who is a dear friend of mine, a wonderful musician, uh, has been the drummer in Limlifter for probably five years now. Uh, Limlifter is another Vancouver band that I was a fan of in high school and then talked into letting me join. So Limlifter is awesome. Great guy named Ryan Dahl. <clears throat> I'm sure I talked about them in part one. And Megan Bradfield, who is just another stunning musician. Um, Eric and Megan and Ryan and I are 
known as Limlifter, and Eric uh, has just became one of my best friends real fast. And he is just an absolute blender with the top off, like way too much energy for his own good. So prolific and just can't stand not playing drums 24-7. So he has this little studio down in Chinatown in Vancouver and is constantly making music. And he got hooked up with another guy in Vancouver named Greg Valu. And Greg and Eric started a new band. I think they were total strangers. I think they just kind of found each other through through a mutual friend, but instantly decided that they were starting a new band, just the two of them, and they knew instantly where it was going to go. So that band was called New Age Doom. Is called New Age Doom. N-A-D for short. And they started making record immediately making music immediately and it's just exactly what it sounds like picture something that's new age but also it's doom and um <clears throat> it's largely instrumental it's largely improvised i believe although i might be wrong about that but it's very um very sort of uncomfortable music um i would describe it as challenging um impressive and completely out from outer space and outside of the realm of of normal music so and i'm sure they would agree with me uh and they put out a cassette tape that i loved called himalayan dream techno and eric just one day again just said hey man we've got all this crazy new age doom record music we're working on i think you should contribute you should play some play some drones on it. And I was like, oh my God, I'd, I'd love to. By this point, like Cola Wars is out and it's a thing and I'm, I'm exploring this world more and more. Uh, <clears throat> I'm like, yeah, I can drone on this. Are you kidding? I'd love to. And I, I loved what I heard. So uh, I recorded just there in Vancouver. I'm in Toronto. I just recorded my parts in Toronto by myself and emailed them to them. And I guess they liked it. And um, this would have been before the Himalayan dream techno cassette, I guess, because I am, I am on that one. So I'm not sure if they made one before that, but anyway, it's our collaboration started there and it was a great process. And we all, and they brought in these unbelievable other musicians. Um, Ryan Dahl had done a stint playing guitar for a New York jazz saxophone, uh, legend named Donnie McCaslin. Donnie McCaslin had just come off a stint being David Bowie's band leader and playing uh, on the Black Star record with another guy named Tim Lefevre, who is the bass player. Um, so on Bowie's Black Star record, there's all these crazy heavy hitters. Um, Donnie and Tim, in particular, being two... Um, that Ryan got to know because he was playing guitar for Donnie's like solo jazz project and they're amazing and unbelievable. And it's like it's over my head, like this way I'm way more amazing <laughs> like than anything, I, anything I know. So I guess Ryan through Donnie and Tim and through Eric, er- Eric uh, got Ryan and, and and Donnie and Tim to contribute to this new age doom cassette as well. And I, we all just 
kind of musically hit it off, even though I, I've never met most of these guys. And um, as soon as that was done, Eric was like, we're making another one right now. So um, they got Tim to say he would be involved. They got Donnie to say he'd be involved. And Eric reached out to lots of other people as well. Dan Rosenboom, this amazing trumpet player, another keyboard player in Vancouver named Jesse Creed. Uh, and just Eric has this infectious positive energy. You just want to be around him. So he has no trouble getting people to say yes to, to, to work with him. So myself included. So apparently him and Greg were just sitting around one day and said, wouldn't it be cool if we got Lee scratch Perry to sing on this record? I don't know how they arrived at that, but I guess they, they decided they wanted to get a vocalist involved and, <clears throat> just to try something new. Like they had done the instrumental thing for the first one and they were like, let's, let's think about our next move. Like let's, let's make something different. Let's, let's, let's evolve. And I guess they just off the top of their head, they're like, who would be the ultimate best person you can think of? And they agreed on Lee Scratch Perry. So Eric got in touch and Lee Scratch Perry said, okay. Um, That's so cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. Uh, I think Lee is, it was a, uh, you know, a, a guy that thrived on collaboration and, <clears throat> and uh, much like Eric was just always wanting to work on something and, and make something. And um, Eric's just got this, this crazy positive energy and, and um, managed to get a hold of Lee. So Eric and Greg say that they recorded the whole record in one afternoon as a long suite sent it to lee with zero instruction and lee sent his back his parts back to them in like four days and then i'll never forget eric texted me out of the blue one day like we had started to work towards another record like we knew this was happening but uh, the lee thing happened really quickly and, and eric texted me out of the blue one day he's like so uh new age doom has a new lead vocalist and i read the text and i was like yeah oh, whatever like as if like i uh, can't wait to see who this is going to be like i just didn't really think much of it and then i didn't i guess i didn't respond i don't know maybe i was busy or something but he was like yeah so it's lee scratch perry and i was like you're joking like that can't be true but it it was and once lee was in place you know it's a very strange process of recording music um you know it's not written ahead of time and it's not really it's so improvisational uh and nobody being in the same room <clears throat> you really have to kind of it's just harder to picture songs or like uh, what what should i do in this part and how will the others react to it because everyone's recording remotely at home but um once Lee had his parts, it started, it really gave it a bit more structure and a bit more shape to it. And it was, we were able to start identifying things that were maybe going to be songs, you know, like it was, it's not like we sent Lee 10 songs and said, sing 10 songs and send them back to us. We sent him like a 45 minute jam basically. And he came back with his stream of conscious, unbelievable wordplay and uh humor and 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 warnings and and just his 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 
vocal delivery was so cool and so neat that it gave us so much to work with. So uh, we just kept adding to it and I sent Eric a ton of material and I, I'm sure it was a nightmare for him to edit and to go through and, and I, he, I think he did a great job and Ryan Dahl had to mix the whole thing like just cr- a crazy amount of information that had to be like just organized like i wouldn't i i'd have like it reminds me of a dream that i have when i have a fever like it just would give me so much anxiety to be responsible for that much information but um he did it they did it ryan and eric and greg Ballou did just such an amazing job producing it out of what we had given them and what lee had given them and and that we had a record all of a sudden and then we just uh we were like okay we're here's the artwork here's like um they lee sent a bunch of photos and lee provided all kinds of cool materials and and uh was writing things out in his distinctive handwriting style like the the song titles on the back of the album cover are all lee's actual handwriting and he looks really neat and he was sending cool pictures and and um you know, he's really involved all along with the process. Um, and we manufactured the record and, and had it sitting in the warehouse ready to go. I mean, it is still, it's, it's nothing's really changed, but, um, I flew out to Vancouver to hang out with Greg and Eric and, and, uh, start working on the next record basically. Um, and so I was staying with Eric and we had, we put the first single out. Um, I don't remember when it came out. Uh, it must have been in August, probably about a month ago. The first song is called Life is an Experiment. And like Lee's shooting video of himself on a beach in Jamaica and sending it to us. And, and um, video directors worked it in just with a other footage of Greg and Eric in the studio and made this really cool video. And it's so amazing. And it's like this thing was starting to take off and, and gather some momentum. And then Lee died at the age of 85 on uh, about august 28th i think or 29th so i was in vancouver with lee or with eric at the time and we were on our way to do like some interviews about the record with with some press in in vancouver and even shoot the video for the second single that day it was on a saturday and uh just first thing in the morning when we woke up to that news it it uh, it really changed the mood for the day um and it's it was so bizarre just like obviously you know lee's 85 and it wasn't exactly well it was shocking like he he was active like very active on instagram posting videos and pictures of himself i believe the day before like it was it's not like he got sick and then was like, you know, in a hospital or unwell, you know, like, you know, like Charlie Watts or something like that was, that is unfortunate too, but it's like he's 85. Of course he's not going to live forever. None of us are, but it just, it was really a blindsiding thing out of the blue, just one day to the next. So, um, the record is still amazing. Um, (laughs) And the second single did just come out, I believe, on Tuesday. And there's a new video with with new footage from Lee and um, that we had just gotten the night before. Like it's just, 
it's never a good time, obviously, but uh, it just seemed like a strange time that day. But uh, anyway, the, uh, we have this record. It's it's going to be it's going to come out on November fifth. <clears throat> it's on a Toronto label called We Are Busy Bodies. You should check them out too. They have lots of really good records. Um, and we put out two videos now. Uh, it's been getting a pretty great response I, everyone i've showed it to seems to like it um pitchfork and uh brooklyn vegan both posted features about it um the day that the second video came out which was on tuesday and brooklyn vegan was also really supportive uh when cola wars came out uh they were they were so cool and put some of their spotlight on me for a day which is nice and, um I, I think it's an amazing record it's an amazing record it's very very strange and very different. And if you're a fan of Lee Scratch Perry, I guarantee you will love it. Uh, and if you're not, uh, you probably will love it. Just listen to it. Listen to his words. And the music is so cool. And the contributions from Dan, the trumpet player, and Tim on bass, and Donnie on saxophone, it just just makes it absolutely out of this world, like next level. Uh, so musical like such musical incredible contributions from those guys like you know these these guys have such resumes like i i can't believe i share a songwriting credit with lee alone but just these guys being in bowie's band and tim like plays with tedeschi trucks and and uh played music on 30 rock and the sopranos like it's like i shouldn't be in this in the room you know what i mean but um they're the coolest dudes and um uh everyone's just so positive and musical and i'm just so 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 lucky um to have been asked to be part of it uh and it's all just because of, of eric really um and ryan Dahl and and the Limlifter gang and just i i just keep getting asked to do these amazing things i i don't really know why <laughs> but uh thank you to everybody who has uh asked me to be to share your uh, awesome project with because uh i'm just I, I can't believe it i go back and look at that spotify playlist and i'm like holy crap like i've done so much cool shit it's amazing like uh yeah i just i don't know how i got here but um it's all because of my mom hey yeah I gotta give she it said to she mom. she said she hasn't finished part one yet um i haven't either i must admit i haven't listened to part one yet but oh, that's uh, okay i will i just i i will it's a little bit weird sitting around listening to yourself talk for an hour and a half, but uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> well, yeah. we're glad that you're here, man. We're so glad. Thank you again for taking so much time sure, uh, man. to to cover all this stuff and I'll wrap it up quickly here if you don't mind. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This might be a good place to stop, but yeah, thanks again, Greg, for doing this, giving all your time. You got it. Everybody out there has got to check out, check out this laundry list. Okay. We're talking about Jay Arner, Chris Storo and Bossa Nova, Carolyn Mark, Luke Doucette and White Falcon. The album's called, as Greg said earlier, Steel 
Felicity Trawler. Uh, the Twink album is called Think Pink 4, Return to Deep Space. Jay and Greg and Sir Ian Blurton are all on that. I've uh, got to give a shout out to Ian Blurton. He is the man. Um, yeah, he's the best. <laughs> Dave Reed's Anunnaki, the American flag, obviously. And of course, the Cola Wars, New Age Doom, and the latest from Lee Scratch, Scratch Perry uh, is Guide to the Universe. Um, so yeah, go out there, check them out. Thanks again, Greg. And uh, yeah, listener, we will check you out next time on Snowcast. <laughs>